Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends. So all month, we've been telling you about our friends at the Missions Resource Network. And today, we've got my friend Dan Bouchelle, who is president of MRN. Is that, the, is that your exact title? Yeah, technically, I guess that's right. The Mr. President. Do I need to refer to you as Mr. President? Uh, we don't actually use titles much around here. Okay. We kind of go by first names. All right. Well, Mr. President, Dan, thank you for being on. Uh, so one of the things— if you would go with the right Reverend Dr. President. Dan. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. Right Reverend Dr. Mr. President. Okay. So you uh, you run MRN. You've been doing that for a few years. You were a, uh, a preacher at a— at, multiple churches before that. And so now one of the things I feel like you can really commiserate with is for many church leaders, missions seems like this problem that has to be solved. How how can we understand it differently than that? You know, from a preacher's perspective, I think that there's this ambivalence that, you know, they, they believe in the gospel, they believe in the mission, they believe in changing lives, but there just seems to be a disconnect between what the church is about, its mission, its vision, and what's happening globally. And, and so often it feels like there's, there's this kind of existing history of mission and there's this stuff going on out there in the world and they don't see how it helps. And a lot of times they may have serious questions about the value of it or what it's producing or even the theological compatibility of what's happening there with what's happening in the, the church. Um, and it almost feels like the missions ministry of the church is a parasite on the church. It just drains the lifeblood off of the church, and mm-hmm. we don't really see how it's helping with the congregation. And there's almost this competition for resources and time and energy. And so what I've come to understand is that um, if those things are well aligned and they're operating out of a common vision, that missions becomes a kind of the bone marrow that drives the mission of the church. The Mm -hmm. local church gets stronger when these things are in alignment. And most churches, frankly, don't know how to get there by themselves. Most preachers, most church leaders really are kind of confused about how do we move forward with this? How do we get these things to work together? How do we harness them in such a way that the vision of the church locally and globally fits together and supports each other? Is that where um, MRN comes in? Like you you help us? You know, yeah, it's one of our points of entry. In, in terms of, of helping churches get those things in alignment. Um, so often, churches just are kind of like venture capitalists who don't really know what business they're in when it comes to mission. They're a financier of other people's visions. Mm-hmm. They don't have a vision themselves. They mm-hmm. could not tell you what they're trying to accomplish in the world. They couldn't tell you particularly where they're called to operate a lot of times. But they feel like they need to do missions. So they've given money to people that they believe in and they trust, but the church doesn't own the vision. They're not even really sure what counts as success or how to evaluate it. Um, And so they don't really know when have we accomplished it. Um, We're just kind of supporting these people out here. What we try to do is help churches develop a vision and a calling where they're kind of driving and they're finding the people to help them accomplish what God's calling them to do. Um, And and that's and that fits with what they're doing locally. Well, I I know there's other facets to what you guys do. I know. taking care of missionaries, you help do pastoral care. So there's a lot of other stuff that goes on, but this is particularly interesting to me uh, because as a church leader, that seems to be a very fitting problem. And so what I would do if I was uh, appreciated church, didn't know what we're doing for missions, call you up and what kind of relationship would we get? Would you be a coach? Would you be someone who sends some emails? Like how would that work? Okay. Well, I mean, just quick, I mean, you've been talking all month, I guess the four things we do in terms of mobilizing, equipping, preparing, and caring. But if I'm talking to a church leader out there, 
I'd want to say, look, um, you may have the resources that you need. You may have the people you need to lead a visioning process within your church. But do you have the time? Can you devote the time to it? And do you want to recreate that wheel when somebody can come in from the outside that's already developed the process and just help you do that quickly and efficiently? And so we do we do we do labs where we come in and we work with a church. Typically, it's about a six hour experience over a weekend, a Friday night, Saturday morning or kind of an all day Saturday sort of thing. And we we do a, a lab that we call uh, revisioning. Um, and it, it just kind of sets the global context, what's happening in the world, what's God's doing right now, what's the role of the American church, mm-hmm. what exactly counts as mission, what's the difference between mission, benevolence, um, and humanitarian work, uh, what is the mission of God, and, and then we take churches through an assessment of what they're doing, how does, how does what you're doing stack up against that, how do you feel about it, where do you want to go, and and that typically is a pretty revelatory experience. Yeah, that sounds very um, that sounds very helpful. And then, then we we typically follow up with coaching. Coaching, good. And I, I know that you guys have uh, resources that you guys devote also to missionaries. So if someone, who, I, I know we have missionaries who listen to this podcast. Uh, if they feel like they're isolated, they're alone, uh, or if someone who's thinking about going into missions, what would they receive by being in, in partnership with you? So we do a ton of missionary care, which is pre-field screening and preparation. Uh, of the of the person and then on-field care just helping them with problems coaching uh problem solving whatever it is and then re-entry care also we do we do training we we train workers in in disciple making principles and approaches how do you start movements instead of just building an institution how do you start a movement Mm -hmm. Uh, how do you function in such a way that it can really spiral way beyond your control Hmm. um and and mobilizing you know what are the what are the great opportunities right now that where God's working in the world where we just really need to focus yeah. uh, so all of those things for for workers on the field uh, I think could be extremely helpful and last year we did over five thousand interactions with workers on the field or in, in some form or another of missionary care who are just you know everything from strategically I'm stuck I don't know what to do to my I've lost funding for my supporting church to our house got broken in, I got beat up, my wife got robbed. What do I do? Oh, you know, wow. I mean, I mean, my wife got raped. I mean, it's terrible things that happen in the field sometimes. And people experience traumas of unimaginable sorts. And, and frankly, that kind of overwhelms supporting churches at times. Or, you know, we're having trouble fighting between two missionaries on the field, or we're having trouble yeah. with the nationals. What do we do? So, I mean, we coach people, counsel them through a lot of that stuff. Wow. Well, that's great. And people can find you online. It's net. Dot org is that right? It's it's m r n e t dot org. Yeah. So it looks like Mister Net, but it's m r n e t dot org. Yeah, m r n e t dot org. That's it. So yeah. uh, and they can contact you through the website there. So thanks. Yeah, for your... or they can just email me at dan dot at m r n e t dot org. Perfect, outstanding. All right, man. Well, thanks for the time. Enjoyed it. Okay. All right, friends. Get ready for some awesome. There it is. Johnny Storm doing the February wrap-up. How are you today, sir? Uh, I'm okay. I'm healing. Healing? Healing from my own church wound. What was your church wound? It's podcast-related. No. You've been wounded by the church? The church podcast. The church Not po- that this is the official podcast of any church. Of the church. church, yeah. I think the Pope officially endorses and said <laughs> this is the, the church's... <laughs> Yeah, it's weird that you say you have been wounded since you're the one on the podcast all the time attacking me. And I finally had an epiphany last night. Did you? Do you know what was on last night on TV, the big event? The, the big Oscars? Award? Yeah, the Oscars. You know who hosted it? 
uh, yes. Jimmy Kimmel, mm-hmm. um, who I guess that's kind of like your your mentor uh, because he has this longstanding, uh, acrimonious, bitter, contentious relationship with Matt Damon. He's always attacking him, and I realized that's what this is. You're, so you're Matt Damon in well, this situation. I mean, let's not get caught up in the logistics of it, in the specifics. But yeah, basically yeah, so. it's a huge jump to make. No, I'm just saying, you're Jimmy, you've got a beard, and you're the one who's always attacking me. So of course you're going to take the Jimmy Kimmel yeah, no, part in this. Yeah, no, checks re- out. Yeah. This metaphor doesn't run out of analogy. No, I feel like it's right there. Um, and what I don't know, Matt Damon character would you be? Uh, well, I mean, I think we'd start with Google Hunting. You know, for obvious sure, reasons. Because you use the F word so often, or okay, that's one of them. And one of the options you've you like gone to with fight. Uh, I am a pa- bad in relationships. No, no, I would just say I. Um, I just feel like that's a character a lot of people connect me to a lot. And yeah, no, for people the are saying that I mentioned. Yeah, you strike me as a a good will hunting in lots of ways. Yeah, just acrimonious, not fun to be around. <laughs> At the end of the movie, your best friends leave you. <laughs> That's think, their dream. Their I, dream is to leave you. <laughs> yeah, I'm liking this. Okay. This works See, for me. This is typical, you know, punching So up. back to me. Yeah. Um, I know, I know uh, you disagree with Galileo and you think the universe revolves around you, but I also have legitimate grievances. Oh, you do? Oh, I think yeah. you're... What is, I'm t- a rat, wrap-up podcast part two. What? Well, Trip just comes waltzing into your life, you, getting you inebriated, and then the next thing you know, you're you're throwing out invitations to do this yeah. wrap up podcast. Well, I thought it was we like had a uh, an open wrap up relationship, and you understood <laughs> that this like you're always like my main awkward. guy, but like that was. It was think you like of it, to wrap up around. <laughs> think of it more like that's a, a elongated intro, and we're this is the final word. This is the the, the final the say. final word. Yeah. So you. So this is like speaking ex cathedra. The stuff that we're saying because we should really watch it. I I think most people understand that's yeah that's about right. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, Let's make our pronouncements then. Okay, my first pronouncement is um, electrocuting pickles is not an appropriate thing to do during sermons. That's the first <laughs> mandate I would make. Okay. okay. Um, so I had one of my good friends, old Scotty Dub, was uh, up in Highland, uh, up in Abilene, went to Highland uh, two weeks ago. Yeah, he did. He and came up and he was like, it was so nice to be fed, just to get fed somebody who opens their Bible when they mm-hmm. preach and... Yeah, actually, some of us actually follow the Bible and have hidden God's word in our hearts, so we might not sin against Him. <laughs> yeah, it's hidden. And <laughs> it's deeply hidden. But He also said that you do a, a pickle, little Gallagher bit, and you you light up an electrocuted pickle, and then you start singing, "This little pickle of mine, I'm gonna let it shine." Or lighter <laughs> the. You call pi- me Carrot Top? Is that what you did when we were talking Ga- on the phone the other day? Gallagher. Did I call you Carrot? I mean, you I could thought be- you called me Carrot Top. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's a jerk move. I was talking to one of our friends who might be your former boss, and uh, I think I made a reference to how like he doesn't want your Gallagher routine back in his pulpit anytime soon. <laughs> That's just hurtful. That's yeah. so hurtful. Yeah. Well, but the thing is, like the Jimmy Kimmels of the world, like you, you guys have to do that kind of stuff. You know, if it's yeah, that's true. Reading mean that's tweets or you know holding on to 
uh, animosity towards uh, towards people he kind of came up with. But um, I understand this. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I wish I would have watched the Oscars so I could use this metaphor against you. But since I didn't, I'm just going to have to – I mean, I think Jimmy Kimmel's cool, so hmm. that works, I guess. Yeah, okay. Well, how you like them apples? Um, <laughs> let's do Your this. delivery's awful. <laughs> Your Boston accent's worse. I didn't even try a Boston accent because I don't have yeah. one. But, yeah, I'm not going to do one. Just um, drop the R. Drop the R. That's also you do the Australian accent. Oh gosh! Yeah, are we are we back to you appropriating Ot. the Ot. Australians? Come to Chatch. Did Chatch. you get any feedback from like Australian people that were like, uh, "Not cool, man"? <laughs> I was talking to uh, Paul Nevison the other day, and he was uh, he said, "I don't know how anyone would actually think your Australian accent is really Australian." <laughs> I don't Good. know. I, I feel like it's more not just in the the voice, but it's actually like the the physical presentation of the Australian ethos that I that I um, espouse. Yeah. yeah, you you definitely just exude. Yeah, down under the. <laughs> you, that is true. Bloom down and under un- describes you. Bloom and onions. All You're around nailing me. it. You're nailing it. The the items to discuss for the podcast. Um, I feel like we're going to spend some time on the old John Cobb slash trip. Uh, Conversation. I feel like that's where we're going to park. Okay, so full disclosure, I tried to listen to your trip wrap up, and it wasn't just out of bitterness, but I couldn't get, I couldn't get it to play because I feel like maybe the podcast gods have ruled in my favor. So I don't know exactly what y'all talked about. We, it's okay. Well, that's your fault. But I assume I assume half of it is trip being like, man, I wish I could do this with Jonathan. No, that that get that, to know him. Nope. Not once. There was that didn't happen at I'm all. Ass, I'm assuming you probably just take a relationship for granted and <laughs> didn't pay attention. So, <laughs> I, so I don't, I don't get process theology. Could you explain it to me since I didn't hear the wrap up version with with Trip? Could you explain it to me like the way Michael Scott says to Oscar, like he would <laughs> to a six year old? I, God changes. I was wondering where you're going with that one. Um, the, the, uh, yeah, yeah. There are other things that he says. No, that. we don't want to do that. The I, honestly, I don't feel like I'm a good expert on it. What I what I am far more comfortable with is open theism. Do, are, are you familiar with open theism? Yeah, um, I, I guess I am more with process theology. God doesn't know the future. Mm-hmm. God is um, vulnerable. Yeah. Um, All the like the um, the Greek. Expectations for deities, the omnipresent, that kind of stuff is all kind of discarded and, and said those are not like biblical claims, Judeo-Christian oh. claims as much as they are pagan expectations that are superimposed upon the God of the Bible. That- okay, here's the thing I thought when I was listening to the John Cobb thing, who seemed like a really nice guy. Um, oh, yeah. And I yeah. could tell he had a great spirit about him. Um, one of the things that I was wondering, though, is it seems like every, every generation does this. We discard other things, and and our current interpretations sneak in there. So we're changing up the Greek versions of God, but are we doing it for the 19th and 20th century versions of them? Yeah, that's fair. Do you know what I mean? That's fair. Yeah, I think. Well, that, I mean, I, I I I honestly am asking because we we had in in the conversation. It seemed like there was all kinds of these assumptions about what God would and would not do, could not do. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I did love how awkward you got when you realized that you and him weren't on the same page on 
the physical resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's we'll, we'll get to that one in a minute. But um, so, truth be told, I found out I'm doing the interview with Cobb, and I don't really know a whole lot about Cobb, so I do it any smart person would do, I uh, texted back and I said, hey, do you know anything about process theology? And so he sent me, uh, I think, a couple of blog posts and we kind of talked back and forth. And then it just reminded me of like, the, I, I had like this season when I was in grad school that I read a lot of open theism. Um, the God Who Risks by uh, Sanders yeah. is one of the, the books that I read. Obviously, Greg Boyd has been very, uh, mm-hmm. a very big proponent of it. Um, uh, a handful of other um, books that I read that, um, I th- like, I thought they were all helpful, but, you know, Sanders' book started off by telling a story about someone in a car accident dying. And so it, it all goes back to, like, what is, where is God when, when things are bad? Where is God in yeah. suffering? And, like, that's – as I read the book, the way it set up was, like, here is a way to maintain um, God being sovereign and God being loving even when they're suffering. And I, I'm not – I have no problem with open theism in terms of the Bible seems to display a God who interacts with humanity – a God who's vulnerable, a God who, who, who grieves, who gets angry, who gets frustrated, um, who, you know, things happen that are part of normal relations. But I don't think any theology can, can remove just the major issue of suffering. And I don't think right. it, just because God's surprised by it doesn't mean that it, it's any more palatable. Like if, if um, like, like if that's yeah. the tragedy happens, like the, you know the car accident and something happens to your kid, it's not like oh well you know God's surprised by that, therefore it's easy to stomach. It, it doesn't fix it. Yeah, it, I'm, you made that point talking to John Cobb, and I thought that was fair. Like, uh, and it, this is actually one of the things when, whenever somebody's going through suffering, it feels like we have this impulse to try to explain it and stuff. And um, this, it's one of those things where you feel like you're you don't know which wire to clip on the bomb. Yeah. You know, um, Calvinism, I heard uh, Tommy Nelson once, like over a decade ago, he's a Calvinist that yep. didn't Bible, um, and he was just talking about how Calvinism works better than open theism because he was talking to a family that lost their kid. A drunk driver killed, uh, ran into him and killed him, and uh, he said they wanted to know that drunk drivers don't rule the universe. And that God was going to, God had something, even if they couldn't see it, that he was going to bring out of this. And I could see how, although I, I think that hangs a pretty big albatross around God's neck, I, I could see how that would be comforting to yeah. some people yeah. in a way that open theism would not to certain people. Yeah, I think trying to predicate a theology based on what makes people feel better is uh, is an issue that's never going to be easy to, to untangle. Because like you said... I. I know people who are Calvinists who've gone through terrible suffering, and their Calvinism sustains them uh, during their, their suffering. But I, yeah. I think just because someone believes it and it helps them doesn't mean it's true. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the terrorists who knocked down the Twin Towers on 9-11 believed that they were doing that to honor God. Just because they mm-hmm. believed it and were willing to die for it doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. But I don't think open theism or Calvinism um, is, a, is a blanket, one-size-fits-all panacea for the problem of God and suffering. So would process theology be like the other end of the spectrum to Calvinism and open theism just a little bit, a couple of clicks to the right of that? No, I think, I think open theism is the antithesis of Calvinism, and process theology is very similar to open theism in its conclusions, but it's not coming at the issue from 
hey, we, we believe in the, uh, you know, the, the, I don't want to say inspiration of Scripture in the same way. They're not starting with Scripture and theology. They're starting with uh, other sciences and dis- other disciplines that get them there. Yeah. So it's not even, huh. like, it's not even the same questions that, you know, a Calvinist is asking. Yeah. What's interesting is that John Cobb kept saying, I I thought what you were saying was the right definition of it, but he kept saying, you know, you're just not biblical enough. You didn't, you know, he kept pushing. And and the more he talked, I was like, wait, I'm I'm thinking of these other passages in the Bible that. So I, I guess everybody has presuppositions when they're reading the Bible. And it was just a fascinating conversation because. When I hear people say biblical or whatever, you know, when they're not trying to proof text or something, but they're really have, trying to have a theological conversation, they almost never mean what he me- he meant by it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, and that's a challenging thing because even, even when we're talking about uh, creation, like you know, I agree, Genesis one, Genesis two, you're not going to get creation out of nothing. Ex nihilo doesn't come into the to the Bible until Romans one. Like Romans one talks about God created the world out of nothing. Genesis one doesn't talk about it. He's like, no, I don't. Where's that at? Roman, Romans one what? Yeah, like it, it's in there. No, you just you didn't have it memorized. You pull that. There was an awesome awkward moment where you're like, because Romans one. And he's like, I'm sorry, I don't. Oh, you're you're searching it on Bible Gateway right now. No, I'm not. You are. I am. Everybody, you can hear him typing. <laughs> okay, it is. everyone, if you hear him typing, that's what he's doing. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is Bible Gateway. Actually, that's the, that is the truth. <laughs> but when we were talking, uh-huh. Trip tried to give me a verse, and he gave me uh, uh, Romans one twenty, and I was like, that's that's on his phone. I was like, that's not the verse I'm I'm talking about, but. Yeah, I know what you're talking about in Romans 1. I was just trying to bring up the awkward moment. Yeah, I didn't have the entire was pretty great. chapter of Romans 1 memorized. Um, yeah, well, there's your first problem. Yeah, do you have it all there memorized? It just, uh, I have the book of Romans memorized, but you, that's... And, it's and by book, you mean... You wouldn't wait. First of all, let's be honest. Um, this is a little bit of MDiv envy. I see that coming out of you. Um, <laughs> all right, well, then we talked about resurrection, which obviously we had different views on resurrection. And... Last month we did kind of a wrap up discussing the um, the Keller piece and N's response and McKnight's response to it, mm-hmm. and we talked about like the the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, not just the crucifixion but also the resurrection as being one of the the, the central markers, uh, at least of Pauline theology. Like you know, Paul says this is of first importance, and so when you're in a room with someone who has a belief that resurrection doesn't happen. How are you dealing with that pastorally? What are you thinking of? Do you think this, like, I have to get you to change your mind on because if you don't get this, that you're not a Christian? Or do you think, okay, this is a, an area in which there can be diversity on? Um, you know, I would, I would let God do his work there, but I would not. I mean, I, I think it's a central tenet of the Christian faith. And I think the reasons that we give for not believing it are really just steeped in, in modernity um, and, you know, the disenchanted world we have. I mean, there's the there's no real good explanations for the rise of the Christian church outside of the resurrection. Because uh, all the reasons that we can give for not believing it, the early disciples could have given that and more. All the reasons we could give for not believing Jesus is God. The first Christians, they were more culturally conditioned to not believe that Jesus, that God 
would have a, the son of God. Yeah. You know, they're, um, but they had seen it. And then the second, second, third generations were taking it on faith. And we've been doing that ever since. And so, um, I, I think it's a, it's a really big deal. You know, I, the reason I don't like that question about whether there can be diversity or not is because I do think, um, there are times in, in ministry I've questioned the resurrection and I, I know people who, who have, and they just kept showing up and, doing the hard work of the soul and trying to wrestle through that stuff they wanted to believe. You know, that's a big thing in the Christian faith, if you want to believe. Yeah. Um, and it's... Th- so, it's always... I wouldn't like to draw a line, but yeah, that's a central... It's it's the center of, of it all. Yeah. One of the things that's been encouraging to me is... And this is a conversation we'll get to in a second, but knowing that even in the first century, the idea of resurrection was not easy to believe. Like, it's always been an issue for people to go, that just doesn't make sense. And I get it's a modernity thing. Like, we, we don't, we think we have science, and so we've moved past that, and we're, we're beyond that sort of archaic thinking. But even in the first century, it's not easy for people to believe in resurrection. And I, Right. So th- that helps me. And so many other things change if you don't believe it. Like, it does distort all these implications, you know, we're not set free from the slavery or the fear of death. Um, not really. Mm-hmm. We're, we're inspired to live a meaningful life, which is a great and good thing. Um, but the, the st- seeing Jesus killed the way he was killed and then touching, touching his body, those scars, and then the ascended Jesus, it, you know, in, in physical form is in heaven right now is a Christian theology. Mm-hmm. So heaven and earth have literally been um, bridged together. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's all these all these ways that it um, there are implications for it that that matter. Yeah. Um, so for process theology, I would think the idea that God sits on the throne with scars in his hands interceding on our behalf that that God changed fundamentally at the cross um, and has wounds. You know, I mean, no. that, that just seems like it'd be central even to process theology. But I'm not a process theo- theologian, so I don't know. Yeah, we'll, we'll let Tripp fix that. But yeah, I, it's just so difficult to take it out because it's just the centerpiece of what we do. And yeah, this is the other side of it, though. I think that there's always room for people who are wanting and trying to process and... Like I, I yeah. want to know. I, I re- it's difficult to believe. I don't understand how this could be, but I, I'm, I'm curious. Like I, think, I feel like there always needs to be room for that, and I think the drawing the lines of who's in and who's out makes people force aside that uh, might kind of determine where they're going to be for their lifetime. When I don't think you have to push that question at this point. But which brings us to the Hurtado interview. Yeah, yeah, that was a- one of the. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Now you trip didn't do that, did he? He didn't do that, did he? Do what? Do segues like that? No, he didn't. You were oh, I was talking about my segue being amazing. You were talking about the podcast. No, your segue was great. That was a really good one. Trip never could be 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 you like that. So that's true. the The book uh, was outstanding. Like it was a super helpful book to me. And I, you haven't have you you haven't read it yet, right? No, I pre-ordered it like 
six months before it came out for the series that you're now trying to hop on board with for the fall. I don't know if that's exactly what's happening. The, th- I think that might be the first book that I've purchased for the podcast in, in a long time. To be honest, congrats! Like they come on down with the common folk. Yeah, no, I'm just saying. Like I, I was very excited to read the book. Actually, I read the book and I said, "No, I think I actually want to do this as a podcast." And mm-hmm. so here's one of my like burning questions. Just a second ago, you said, "Well, how else could you explain the rise of Christianity if there's no resurrection?" And I think I think you could come up with it like a very plausible story for how it could have happened. Like you, you understand how groups work. You understand how stories get told and. You know, I think easily you could have one or two well-intentioned people who have been given uh, a partial truth or a non-truth, and they decided it's worth being told. And so yep. it spreads, and, and it just— Let's keep this thing going. Keeps yeah. this thing going, and then you have second-generation, third-generation people, and you know, Christianity is flying under the radar. And so in the distance between when it actually happened and the time that Christianity becomes a, a major phenomenon— uh, there's so much distance that the the details are really inaccessible. And so, you know, 300 years later when Constantine is converted, then finally it has to be legitimized, but it's so far away that there's no way to prove that, like, the earliest beginning of Christianity was just a few people mis- misspeaking on something or intentionally lying about it. So, I, like, I've yeah. always questioned that. And as Hurtado was explaining and describing, like, early Christianity, it made a whole lot more sense to me in terms of that creeping suspicion of, well, maybe it's just kind of this lie that's been perpetuated and lived under the surface and then blew up with Constantine when he says, like his line that, that Constantine Christianity is not because he had this, you know, miraculous scene, like vision of the, the Cairo in the sky. And so he converted because of the, the military victory that was predicated upon that, that vision. And therefore mm-hmm. Christianity became something that was under the surface and then became prominent. But instead Constantine's conversion was because of the prevalence of Christianity already in the society. And he, he right. wasn't bringing this under-the-radar thing into prevalence. It already was prevalent, and so therefore but, he jumps on it. That's right. Um, and that was news to you. It was, I've never heard it said that way. Are you trying to shame the, me now? I, I, well, I, I am because um, it's you, and that's like one of my hobbies. Mm-hmm. Just like Jimmy Kimmel. Yep. But no, I mean, that that narrative that it was um, basically a small thing that he thought he could use, but it was a giant movement at that point, or, or at least a significant portion. Yeah. Um, so so wh- one of the book... No, I was going to say the numbers that he was quoting is that you would have had... When, the, when Jesus passes away soon after 40 AD, you probably have about 1,000. By 100 AD, you have upwards of seven to 10,000. By the time you get to 380, which is around the time of Constantine, you're talking millions of people, like five to six million mm-hmm. people. So that is, um, that's quite a bit of people. Yeah, and and it. So I'm reading this book right now called "The Patient Fervent of the Early Church." Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider, and his big thing is, and it's it's really helpful, is that the the virtue that Christians talked about almost exclusively the first few hundred years in the, in the face of great persecution, in the face of, of everything, was patience. It wasn't love or hope or all those. Hmm. The virtue was patience. And they had this idea, and this I think actually is a theme that I think you could weave through your entire month of podcast. They had this idea 
that um, God was at work. Mm-hmm. God was going to bring about social change, and um, he was going to change the world. And so they could focus on being a different kind of community. So they, whenever they talked about the Great Commission, the first few hundred years, this church that was growing like crazy exponentially, whenever they talked about the Great Commission, it was in passing reference to the Trinity. How, make that connection, please. They were, they're basically, God, God had already done it. God had, had gotten the word out, and their, their job was to be faithful witnesses. So to bear witness to what God was doing among them, and um, you know they were going to care for the people that, that were in their lives, but um, they weren't going to try to change the world. And by living that way, by letting God, um, so they were known for their patience, they were known for their love and mercy and all those things, but they... They weren't trying to reach out and control the world. Hmm. They were only trying to master their own sin. And um, there was an incredible attractiveness about that. Um, and, and, and so the reason I said you could run that all through is because so much of the sin that we see in leadership, which is a really good thing. I, I'm actually a big fan of leadership. And, and uh, I, I don't – Mark Driscoll does not come to my mind immediately when I think of pastor. Yeah. Or leader, but one of the reasons I think that we're so shy about the power that we as pastors actually have is because we have seen, or we, we, there's a caricature of us that we're impatient and um, trying to control things outside of our um, area of authority. Well, okay, I've seen the Church of Christ leadership is not as typically encouraged by people in our position as you would be in sure. like go across the street to the Baptist church. The pastor has a, a lot more say of, over what happens mm-hmm. because maybe our tradition is responding to that caricature of the, or do you yeah. think that's still just uh, as prevalent in churches yeah. of Christ in our tribe? Um, no, I don't think it's very prevalent at all. I don't know very many churches of Christ that are struggling with uh, tyrannical, you know, people in charge, um, and and that's actually not necessarily unhealthy. No, that's not a bad thing. Um, in churches of Christ, the thing that we're more tempted to do is neglect the power that we have, mm-hmm. instead of you know acknowledging it and using it for other people's flourishing. Um, do you, okay, do you think about – so this is kind of like the conversation that we had about uh, the, the way the lamb and the dragon. Do you think about like intentionally like the, the influence that you have and how you're using it? Is that oh, something yeah. you're thinking through? Um, like, yes. I think what I, whatever I decide I'm going to pay attention to grows, and that could be the problems in the church or that could be the, um, the, the good things that are happening in church. You know, I can, I can give a platform. I can tell stories about things that I want repeated, um, or I can, um, I could use my influence as a way to belittle or, you know, there's all kinds of ways that we can use the influence that we have. But for this temporary season in our life, we have been given a platform and a microphone. And, Mm -hmm. um, if we use that for trying to call people together to serve and love one another and, and to, a mission that is bigger than ourselves. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good way of stewarding yeah. 
the influence that we have and try not to idolize it. Yeah, I think that's good. When, okay, when you think of power, you also think of it like the downside of it. And that's why you have um, books like Healing Spiritual Wounds that was written um, <clears throat> uh, by our friend Carol Howard Merritt, um, in which there are people who have been wounded by people who have power at churches and they've done things uh, that have caused people to have serious spiritual wounds that, that carry, they carry with them that, that negatively affect how mm-hmm. they understand church and God and spirituality and all that. Um, so I, I'm reading this book and I'm going, there are things that I know that I have done unintentionally that have had sure. negative consequences and negative effects on people. And, and I, that sucks, right? Like that's one of the, ho- yeah. the heaviest burdens about being a preacher. The stuff she said about, uh, the wounds cut so deeply cause they carry the weight of God. Yep. That, yep. I remember the first time I thought, oh, my goodness, that's that's just me being an idiot. Yeah, that has nothing to do with God. That just has to do with I, I'm just dumb. And if I was a football coach, then it would just be the, the coach is an idiot, not, oh, you're a preacher, therefore every, God is Every dumb. couple of years at Highland, we have this um, this Bible Times Marketplace where you basically walk in. We have this big deal where it's their children's ministry. It's like a... VBS, but Highlands version of it. And uh, Richard Beck, for years, played Jesus. So all day Saturday, he would be walking around dressed like Jesus. And I remember hearing him one time that when you are acting like Jesus, you better pay attention to how you treat everyone. Because, like, he he was really, really intentional about looking for the kid that was nervous and didn't want to talk and was, you know, staying and just trying to not ignore anybody and all those kind of things. And I, I thought of that story when you were talking with Carol about that, because that, that makes mm. sense. Not that we're icons of God. We're not. But people, sometimes God ministers through us to other people. We get a word from the Lord for people. And, um, and so they can also for, forget We've got our own junk, some of us more than others. Yeah. I appreciate you acknowledging mm-hmm. that about yourself, though. It's not the direction I went. Okay. M- m- maybe it's a seven thing, or. But hearing threes talk about that, I'm like, okay, I get that you. Maybe it comes more natural to think about, okay, in this, in this room, people need me to be something. I, like, I'm the representative of God. But I literally never think about that. I think, I, like, I. I, I care about what I do. I work really hard at my sermons. I'm, I try to be prepared and responsible, and I try to be caring and loving to people. But I don't ever think that people superimpose God onto Luke. I don't know why. It just it never in my it's, it's never in my purview. And maybe I need to. Start um, yeah, I don't know if I would say that. That they they think I don't think they conflate me and God ever. I do think they conflate us for the voice of the church, who who is God's people. And so they're, you know, I, I think even, even if somebody doesn't have a sophisticated theology like yourself, then they would still, (laughs) they would still not think that we were speaking directly on, on God, on God's behalf. But if we're a jerk, then, and that, and we're employed by 
this community. Yeah, that community I, I think that that would be more it. Hey, back to Hurtado. The thing that I thought was the most fascinating um, in that interview was at the very last where he talked about heresy. Was it originally uh, about division? It was people who were trying to say it's either this or nothing. Yeah. And it's so interesting because the people that I hear heresy, heretic from most often are doing the very thing that heresy initially meant. Farewell, yeah. Luke Norsworthy. Yeah, so funny. The I think that question was born out of – because that was the very – that might have even been recorded during – that week when we were talking about the, uh, the Keller piece. Uh, and I think that was in the background of, of where I was coming from, but that, which makes you wonder if, if you're going to say, this is the line, like just a second ago, we said, you know, resurrection, that's kind of like a, a big deal. Um, if you're adding more to that, does that mean you're being heretical? If you're saying it, if you, if you cross this line, then you're not in to say where that line is, is that the heretical act that you think Hurtado would, would be ta- talking about? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think there are lines, and one of the – Chesterton is possibly to be too open-minded Ugh. that your brains fall out. The thing that – but pa- Do I – No, but like Paul right. talks about false teachers, and like he will talk about Gnosticism and other things that like this is a, a heretical teaching that – if you go this direction, then you're stepping outside of the, the bounds yeah, of Christianity. But he is talking to that specific church. You know, I think he if, if Paul's writing up the creeds, he's, he might not uh, write up exactly what he was saying to, you know, Corinth. But I think resurrection would be in there. Um, yeah. Okay, so have, have you seen the uh, the drama about the uh, the shack, the new movie? I haven't. That's, that's coming out. Okay, so the – oh, some – Calvinist uh, blogger, um, what is his name? Ch- Chili or Ch- I don't know, Childs or something like that. He did this thing about why I'm not going to watch uh, the Shack, and his thing was because it depicts God as a person. Hmm. And I'm like, like Jim Caviezel and like the it, Passion. Yeah, well, that's Jesus, so it's okay. But like God actually being like Morgan Freeman would definitely be going to hell because he's been like the voice of God and God like so many times. <laughs> Uh, and but just like you know, that's a heretical teaching because it depicts God as a person, and it goes like the Exodus stuff about not having idol or not having any graven image yeah. that represents God. And I'm like, wow, that's that's kind of a hard stance on something that like the incarnation seems. Well, to, you know, but you can sympathize with that, right? Because Churches of Christ, even Randy Harris says the one thing we have to give is biblical iconoclasm. Which after I look that up. Because I know you have no idea what that means either. Um, basically, just that we, if it's not in the Bible, we shot it down and you know yeah. tried to destroy it. We the we were we were against all icons and mm-hmm. I mean images of God, those kind of things wouldn't sit well with our tradition, mainly because they were originally seen as divisive. You know, like. Like yeah. uh, the way the think about think about the way we critique white Republican Jesus images or whatever Jesus these days is always depicted like the person who's depicting him. So yeah. anyway, 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, so, uh, watching the uh, or listening to uh, Carol talk about the story in which she absolved someone. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that story? Uh, she had uh, a friend who had committed adultery, and even though that like her tradition doesn't do absolution, she felt like in that moment she needed to do it, and so she created her own little liturgy of absolution just for that person. And I thought that like that was a really that connected to me because I feel like we have such a low view of of certain mm-hmm. moments uh, and like we we almost like live as deists in the world like there's nothing sacred and special about certain intera- interactions I think sometimes you need those sacred things that connect you to God and obviously that person in her um, in her shame and her guilt she yep. needed that but like we don't always have the language or the practices for that I, I would love I actually was thinking when when uh, I heard that about recently somebody confessed to me having an affair and the stuff I did was, you know, have you told, have you told your wife? Have you, and basically I didn't do anything like I, I prayed with this person and, um, but I, I you jumped into trying yeah, to fix the problem. I, I don't think and, I helped lighten their load. No, I do that too. I find myself going, okay, well, uh, you, okay, you lost your job. Well, uh, when are you going to get your next paycheck? Mm-hmm. And how long is your severance package? And you know what? What are your and and I need to instead be like as like th- this is the like the a higher view of the priesthood of specific people that you need to be the voice of God in that moment, not just the voice of let's work through the pragmatic steps because I feel like the pragmatic steps sometimes take the guilt off me. Like okay, well. They're going to be okay, so don't feel like you need to fix them because they're staying warm yeah. and well-fed. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I jumped to that too, huh. man. Um, you, so her stuff on evangelism, when y'all were talking about that, here's, mm-hmm. here's what came to my mind. The, we often throw people who care about evangelism under the bus, but I can't remember who it was. I think it was actually John Piper who said in a in a sermon in South Africa. You're getting, f- I think you're like six months away from your full Calvinist review. Hey, I just threw Piper under the bus with my farewell Luke Norsworthy thing. So that, I, I feel I'm, like you're I'm, just trying yeah, to Yeah, I'm just, okay. I'm balancing it out here. Um, he okay. said at a sermon in South Africa that there, there are two kinds of Christians in his experience in America these days. People who are compassionate about immediate things and people who have compassion about eternal things. And so a lot of the times what what you know I think the the people who are driven for evangelism there really are consequences with what we do in this life um that you know I think we're preparing our souls to want something and then um ultimately God's going to give us what we want and so there is something to that like and and think about it Think about all the things that the the Christian faith has to offer people. Like it's actually really, it really is good news. Um, If it's not seen as like you're trying to sell someone a used car. um, I I feel like the the critique of evangelism is not that the message isn't important, but that there doesn't need to be a disregard for their humanity so that you can make a sales pitch. Yeah, totally. I totally get that. But... What's D.L. Moody's thing about, um, I like my way of doing evangelism better than your way of not doing it. The, the, 
I yeah. mean, I think this is Scott McKnight's point in that blog he wrote uh, defending Tim Keller was like he's actually pretty effective in talking to people who are really searching for something. They know something's missing in their life, whereas uh, people who grew up evangelical react and just make fun of that when there's actually a really good – so, okay, just – just a month ago, I, just, I told this in church yesterday, so I can tell it now, I guess. I got the woman's permission. A month ago, a woman is invited to church by a, a member. She comes. She comes up after church. She tells me that her boyfriend that she lives with is beating her. And um, oh. I immediately, there's an elder right behind her, and I call him over. And he calls the Noah Project, which is a, a, a shelter for battered women yep. in town. And yeah, she yeah, does yeah. not go back home. Two weeks later... Um, she, she's back at church. She's happy. She's severed the ties, but she's got to get her stuff. There's a couple of big guys behind her. And I'm like, Hey, Lucas, Garrett, come over here. Y'all want like a really manly ministry. Can you escort her to her house to get, help her get her stuff from her boyfriend who is violent? And, um, you know, this is, she has not been baptized. She has not decided she wants to be a Christian yeah, but um, if if you were to ask me, you know, I think the church helped save her that day, and I think that's one step along along the way of what the church's involvement in her life is going to be. Yeah, but I don't think anyone's going to, no one's going to knock that because that is good news embodied. Yeah, like her, but the, but it, it, it all is. That's the thing. Like we're not talking about yeah, abstract. No. Just at it. W- w- go ahead. But what I think Carol is pushing against, or at least the way I understood it, is that what she's pushing against is this sort of, I'm going to take 30 seconds of my life. Oh, yeah, I'm going to ask totally. if you're going to go to hell tonight. Like, that's even, I think everyone knows master, that's wrong. broken any of the Ten Commandments? Yeah. Yeah, 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 no yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no one, that's disrespectful. It, it diminishes the goodness of the good news. But when you, when you express the goodness and love and care and concern for someone— and like I, I feel like that's like that's great evangelism. It is, and the irony is often the places that can do that the most effectively um, don't realize that that's the tip of the spear for what the gospel is, and so they reduce it to just abstract things. And so it's look, we're not just trying to get you into heaven. That's a big thing, but we're a colony of heaven. And, yeah, we're making and, that here. And, no, we're not making it here. We're we're like, I mean, God only God can make it here. But we are yeah. living in it. We're ambassadors of that place, and so we'll care for you. And um, anyway, that this is why if people are the most open to evangelism when they're in crisis in their life because they're most open to saying, "I, I need something." And yeah. anyway, yeah. I was reading a little uh, old BBT today, uh, the book When God is Silent, hmm. and she talked about how, like, how we're in famine of good news. And so she talked about going to church one Sunday on Easter, and the preacher got up and did, his whole sermon was like jokes about the Easter bunny. And at the very end he said, yep, and Easter is God's joke on death. And then he sat down. And she was like, if, if there Yikes. was a, a police for preaching, he would have been arrested and right then. Barbara because Brown he d- Taylor's in the audience. Why don't you just be like, I know. I'll, uh, I'll introduce now. 
this is Barbara. She'll take care of it from here. But like when there is good news that needs to be told and you're just uh, talking about secondary stuff, uh, like we're not doing our job. But also if we are just trying to get people to make a, a momentary decision in a moment of weakness, we're also not like that's also not good yeah. news. And I, I think we want to rush it. We want to do drive through. Uh, we want to do drive-through grief in our culture, and we want to do drive-through evangelism, and none of those work. Yeah, but here's yeah. here's the thing, just to push back to this a little bit. One of the challenges that I think people of our generation who grew up with Christian, um, you know, in the Christian tradition, are going to have to deal with, partly because uh, um, of the of what Carol talked about with the the loss of of seem, seeming value the Christian faith has in in American culture. I think one of the things we're going to have to realize is that we've been inoculated to the gospel. We're so used to it, we forget the joy and the peace and the life and purpose and meaning it brings to people. So it's not, it really isn't that we're trying to meet a quota or hit some kind of numbers or make us feel better because we have a certain size church. Like all those things are things that people have done and and pastors have to be on their guard to struggle against. But the reason we're, we, you know, I, I've seen people's lives turned dramatically around by Jesus. And I know you have too. Yeah. And so that's the thing that drives me to like when somebody's going through something, they don't have a relationship with the Lord, being like, this is actually, I would be neglecting the calling God has given me to not let you know about this. Mm-hmm. As long, okay, here's my pushback to your pushback. Um, as long as it leads them into a right. community of people. You can't preach the gospel who, who, without a community of people living it out. You cannot do it. And there has to be an invitation to be participating in this gospel community. Of, of and course. That's, yeah, it is not. I mean, what you're talking about is radical American Western individualism. Like, that's no. that's a problem. Um, no. Just trying to get people to make decisions. That's not yeah. what evangelism is. And, and inviting people to are a, part of that. I mean, right? To just make decisions, yeah, like to, to simply just get them to 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 say a prayer, raise their hand. Sure, to, we've used know, like that. Those... In all, we've used that in ways to like justify our budgets for missions and all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff that are that are horrendous and have done damage. But mm-hmm. it's still, a decision is part of it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, speaking of horrendous, uh, what are you blogging about now? Uh, Ash Wednesday this week. Uh, Nick, tomorrow is kind of a summary of the sermon I did Sunday on my personal blog, and Scott McKnight's is the Ash. It's coming out on Ash Wednesday, and then a re- what do you? And then a review of what? How did you know I was about to say review of? I know every. Gosh, that's scary. Um, th- I'm still reviewing the book Endangered Gospel by John Nugent, who you should interview on no. here. Ted Nugent, okay. I'll no, write him dude, down. he's a, a restoration movement person. Did you know that? Ted Nugent. He's like a Christian church guy. Hmm, yeah, you should it. totally interview him. He's he's pure Anabaptist. Let me tell you who I am interviewing. Okay. Who is better than Ted Nugent? It's not Ted Nugent. Walter Brueggemann. Really? Oh, Walt and I are going to have a little chit-chat a couple days. Cool. So that should be fun. Oh, you know what? We've it's got- his Ash Wednesday. It's his, like, preparing for Lent, I bet. Reminder, I will die. I should uh, probably mm. podcast with Luke. Yep. 
Yep, there's Make me welcome to every podcast is like your own version of Mean Tweets with Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> uh, we've also got a mailbag podcast oh coming God, up. We've got some how good. Did I forget to we... bring this up. <laughs> what? Oh, you're doing a mailbag again. No, oh, this I this is great. What? Let me tell you what is wrong with the mail. I've got good questions that we've got to discuss. Okay, give me a couple. Just tell me a couple of of we have. Where do you uh, get your question with the... at, Luke? Yeah, Luke's that's mom. an important question. Why would she ask me that? That's she was fed the question. We've got, we've got questions about uh, role of the pastor. Uh, we're going to do a question about uh, midrash. We've got a question about uh, being a bridge between conservative and progressive. Do you feel like you're that? Um, do you feel like you're trying to be a bridge between conservative and progressives? Well, um, the, the caller left a message that said I was, and so I will let him answer that question not myself. I, I feel like that personally as well. Like you see the beauty in what both of these streams of Christians are trying to do. So if you'd like to forward that caller on to me, then I could probably answer the question better. I feel like the, I feel like that was a legitimate answer, and I felt like I was I was kind of bracing for some sort of sardonic statement. Well, you are a bridge in that you get walked on. So there it is. There okay. it is. You just waited for that punchline. Yeah. And you, I, I gave it to you. Okay. All right. So uh, we're doing those. Um, yeah. Feel free if you got a question, Jonathan. You can send it to Luke at Luke Norsworthy or send it to me through Facebook. Uh, or if you want your voice on the old podcast, send it to me as a voice memo. And who knows? Your very own voice might be on this podcast. Wow. It's like Christmas morning. It is. I think it's a Christmas morning. <laughs> Every Monday morning when people get to um, check out their old uh, iTunes feed on the on the phone. Podcast there. That's it. Good month, man. You're a good month. Uh, Jonathan, thank you again, as always. Yeah, thank you. Enjoy your, enjoy your day. Thanks for Virginia. checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now a jerk.